Well, thank you guys for having me. I've been here for a couple of years now. This is my first time getting to share with you guys. And that's, that's exciting for me. But it's also exciting because, well, I trust you guys. And uh, I enjoy uh, the feedback that people give. And, and what I have to share, as anybody that knows me well, is, is challenging and controversial. So I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say back to me about it. Uh, whether that's in talkback time or, or just afterward. And I'm also excited because by coincidence, serendipity, by the Lord's divine appointment, the lectionary chose for me a verse that was pivotal and, and challenging for me at a time where I, I converted from more evangelical, charismatic faith that saw sin and confession in, in a certain way. And as that changed for me, I, I began to become more compelled towards community. And that's when I found the Anabaptist tradition. I really found out that, that I'd been Anabaptist my whole life and just didn't know it. Uh, so I'm excited for those reasons to share with you. Also, Tim followed James last week, so it, it lined up really well. And everything I have to say is completely opposite of his, of course. So, no, it's not at all. So uh, as, we, as we go along, some warnings about me. I'm quite verbose, but I'm doing my best to be attentive to the tacos that we want to get to because I love tacos. So, uh, as you know, I'm a, a chaplain, and in chaplain, confession is one of the, the biggest things that, that we we're work with, actually. As a chaplain, I don't administer any medicine. I don't, I don't do anything that actually heals anybody physically. What I have to offer people is their ability to confess, and then my solidarity, my presence. That's what I have to offer. And I believe that that's found in the scripture that we're focusing on. And while there's a lot of wisdom in the whole passage, and I think we could spend a lot of time dissecting the passage, the portion I want to focus on is this, is this moment when James, or the author of James says, confess to one another and you will be healed. This week, I was doing what we call a, a tea for the soul. So in chaplaincy, if I understand right, every chaplain organization does what they call a tea for the soul. That's where we meet with the uh, staff of the hospital. We take them tea and, and you know, some like cookies or things. And it's just an opportunity to help the staff take a moment to make some tea and, and just the making of tea causes you to pause. And it gives us an opportunity to listen to them. And this particular tea, uh, when, when like normal people came in, they, they talked a little bit, but this doctor stayed behind. And he stayed and talked to me and the other chaplain for 20 minutes and told us about these patients that he had who he'd been seeing for most of their lives and they had brothers or sisters pass away. He told us about one patient who the, the parents passed and now his older brother became kind of the man of the house. And I didn't have anything to offer him, but except for the ability to take his confession. What he wasn't realizing was that he needed confession time. Now, traditionally we think of confession as I have sin, and I confess to you my sin, and I forgive it. If we contrast James with 1 John, 1 John says that exact thing. Confess to one another your sins, and you'll be forgiven. Which is different than what James is saying. You will be healed. So this doctor, his, his need 
for what he was confessing was actually that there were situations in his patients that he couldn't address, that he couldn't heal. They needed someone to confess those things to. And what we had to offer for him was solidarity. So as I said, I have uh, characteristically controversial things to share with you. So one of those is that I want to challenge how we understand sin. This is one of the, the critical or pivotal moments for myself and my reconstruction of my faith as I left evangelicalism and became or, or transformed into an Anabaptist, converted to Anabaptist, however, the most comical way we might want to say that. But that was what stuck to me was uh, you will be healed. And it, it hit me really hard one day because healing implies that there's some sort of condition. Now, in traditional Christianity, especially the Reformed tradition, they would say that, that everybody is under the condition of sin. So everybody is born into sin. Now, I, I challenge that already, as uh, I think many of us here, I think most of us, in talk about time, tell me if I'm wrong, but we would probably argue that the people are intrinsically good. As many of you know, I, I worked as a prison guard for 10 years. And even after 10 years as a prison guard, I am still convinced that people are intrinsically good. People have life situations that they're born into. They have circumstances that are out of their control and they're actually doing their best at, at nearly all times. And even when they choose to do poorly or choose bad decisions, it's probably still born out of some sort of self-preservation, some sort of survival. So I'm not convinced by this idea that we are intrinsically sinful. However, if sin is understood as transgression, individual, I do something wrong. If sin is understood as transgressing against the law, as I hear it often taught, or at least where I grew up, that's how it was taught. And sin is a black and white issue between just one person and God, or maybe between you and another person. You sinned against me, you know, you offended me, that sort of thing. So when I started to understand it as a condition that I needed to be healed from, to me, that began to challenge this understanding that it's just transgression, because it's something I'm trapped under. So what could that thing be? Lucky for me, I was in seminary, and I came across uh, liberation theology. And uh, if you're not familiar with liberation theology, I will do an unjust synopsis of it for you. And you're welcome to uh, expand on it during talkback time or, or come up to me after. You know you got it all wrong, Adam. But essentially, liberation theology is a Latin American theology that developed in the 50s and 60s. And it was mainly developed by these priests who began to challenge the Catholic Church for siding with oppressive governments or uh, governments that oppress their people instead of siding with the people that were oppressed, as the gospel calls us to do. In liberation theology, sin might be better understood as oppression. Now, this challenges our, uh, what I'll call a more primitive understanding of sin. A primitive understanding of sin is I've done something wrong, I've transgressed in this law, and I'm not saying that that is incorrect, but I am saying that that's a primitive, a baseline understanding of sin. And a more expanded understanding of sin might be oppression. Now, I, I'm aware that, that it might sound kind of controversial to say, I, I want to expand the understanding of sin. I want to include more things in what is sin. <laughs> but actually, I think we can see that when sin is understood as oppression, 
we can see, I can make the claim that we are all under the bondage of sin much more accurately. Because all of us feel trapped under the sin of despair, shame, sometimes depression, loneliness. We might be trapped under the sin of a system that oppresses us, a system that exploits my labor so that my boss can get ahead. I might be oppressed by an abusive relationship. I might be oppressed by my addiction to drugs. And what I need is salvation, liberation from it. In liberation theology, the idea is that God is the liberator. There are people that are oppressed, and God liberates them. The, uh, the, the primary source for this, this thought is in, uh, in the story of the Israelites in Egypt, in which God's people are oppressed. God liberates them from Pharaoh. So now if we understand sin, it's oppression. When I say, or when James says, confess to one another your sins, that you might be healed. This idea of being trapped under sin, being oppressed by sin, takes on a new meaning. And in fact, I don't think we have time to go into it today, but I think the rest of James takes on a slightly different meaning. James is talking about sickness and sin throughout the book. And if sin is understood not just as my transgressions against you, but actually feeling under bondage of oppression, then the healing of that sin is when you are liberated from your oppression. I suggest, too, that uh, one way we understand it is usually uh, in meeting people's practical needs. So a person confesses that their, their, a tree fell down in their, in their home or something knocked down a fence, and we help them, meeting their practical needs. But there are things like the doctor I mentioned that can't be met in a practical way. I can't bring people back to life. I don't have the ability to administer medicine, but I do have the ability to be with you, be present with you, to understand you. I think that we as a church, I think Mennonite USA does a good job of understanding these systems that I talked about, people that are oppressed. We mentioned valuable and important realities, harsh realities of, of the, the Haitian people that are fleeing for their lives right now. And I think we do a great job to be aware of those things. So please understand that as I preach or preach what I say, teach, I don't like this preach. As I'm teaching, I'm not, this isn't uh, to say that we are doing a bad job of any of these things. Actually, I, I hope to be encouraging to you to say that I do think we do well to be aware of these things, that we are aligning ourselves well with the Lord's word, when we say that when these people confess they have need, we seek to meet that need, we seek to heal them. Additionally, I think another place we do this well is in our confession time, when we shared joys and concerns. For me, that was, and still is, one of the most beautiful and important parts of our liturgy, of our meetings. I actually don't care about the sermon or the songs at all. I just... <laughs> I just like sitting when people share their needs, getting to hear how I could help them. I think where this is probably most challenging for me is when somebody is confessing, they don't always realize that what they're confessing is that they might be wrong. 
that they, they are actually under some sort of bondage. I don't want to be too politically controversial about that. I want to be uh, sensitive, but I think that there are some things in our society right now that people talk about when they, certain healthcare issues that they don't want to participate in. And they're confessing in that moment something deeper that even they don't understand. And offering them solidarity is choosing to not hate that person. Offering them solidarity is choosing to try to understand them from their perspective, even if we may not uh, want to be close friends with them. <laughs> and obviously, even though we might not want to spend a, a lot of time uh, within six feet of that person, it's a uh, social distancing joke, just in case you're wondering. But there are people that need our solidarity that are confessing to us and don't always realize this. So to close and to drive this home, I uh, would like to share with you another story that has deeply impacted me, that has been pivotal in understanding uh, this passage. And I, I think it's a story you might've heard, forgive me if it is, we'll just see that as a, one of those great reruns of a great episode of The Office that we really like to see. I'll say that's Phyllis's wedding. That's my, I don't mind when that one comes on. So this story is a Jewish parable called uh, God's Hands. And the parable goes that there is a, an older man, a wealthy man in the back of his synagogue. And he's tired. It's warm that day. And he starts to, to doze in and out. And while he's dozing in and out of consciousness, he hears the rabbi giving the midrash say something to the effect of, for I am hungry, go and make me bread and bring it to me to eat. And when he hears this, in and out of his consciousness, he, he thinks this is God speaking to him. So, wanting to be obedient to God, he jumps up, runs home, leaves the service, makes five loaves of bread and returns. And he goes up to the, the front of the temple where the, uh, the Torah box is, where they keep the Torah scrolls. And he realizes he has a major dilemma. Now that I've made this bread for God, how do I feed it to God? How do I get it to him? Sorry, how do I get it to God? Him or her. So he opens the box and places the bread in there and closes it and leaves. And at that time, the custodian for the temple walks in. And the custodian has been cleaning. He goes to clean the Torah box and he pauses. And he says, Lord, I don't have enough food to feed my family. I don't know how we're going to make it through the week. I need a miracle. He opens the Torah box to clean it and he sees five loaves of bread. It's a miracle. He grabs them and says, hallelujah, the Lord has met my needs, and he leaves. At that time, the older, wealthier man is walking out, and he just feels so foolish. This was just such a silly thing to do. So he's like, well, I shouldn't let the bread go to waste. I'll go and get it. He opens the box. Oh, my Lord, the God has eaten the bread. This is amazing. A miracle has happened. So he goes home. The next week, he's, well, maybe God wants some more bread. So he makes five more loaves of bread, puts it in the box, says a prayer. The custodian comes in after the man leaves, bows down and says, Lord, thank you for providing for my family. But once again, I am out of money, I'm out of resources. Thank you for the bread that you provided. Not only was I able to feed my family, but before it went bad, I was able to give it to other people who were also in it. But I need a miracle again. He opens the box and there's the five loaves again. This is amazing. This miracle goes on for 20 years to the point that now they're not really, there's no mystique about it. You know, they're just kind of 
running in, throwing the five loaves in, closing it, running in, taking the five loaves out. They've kind of taken it for granted. The rabbi of the temple stays late one day and sees these two men running, one run in, run out, run in. What's going on here? So he stops the two men, tells them what he's seen, and they look down very sheepishly, embarrassed. And one says, I thought I was feeding God. And the other says, I thought the Lord was feeding me. The rabbi takes their hands and says, don't you see that your hands are God's hands? We confess to one another our sins. That is the Lord confessing. If we, if we need more uh, biblical evidence for this, this is the story of the sheep and the goats. For as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. There is God's presence is in that moment when our needs are met by God's people. God's presence is found in our churches, our synagogues, our temples, where people confess to each other their sins, where they're oppressed, where they have need. And then God's people meet that need, whether that be practical or emotional and spiritual. Thank you.